Author Simon Sinek joins us now. Simon, interesting to see that you actually grew up in South Africa. I did. I lived there for five years as a kid uh, in Johannesburg, and uh, <clears throat> my grandparents lived out their lives there, uh, and my, I still have family there, actually. Oh, and uh, do you visit much? I haven't visited in many years, I'm sad to say. Hmm. But just take us through your career, because after uh, grow, well, being born in Wimbledon 42 years ago, coming to South Africa, as you say, for your first five years, you then moved into a, a different line of work and one that's brought you great fame, focusing on leadership. But what was it about leadership that, that got you interested? There actually, I, I didn't sort of choose to go in this direction. Um, my, my journey is, uh, was actually quite organic. Um, I had uh, started a business many years ago. I had a, a little marketing consultancy. And it was exciting for the first few years. And then I ran out of love for it. And um, I was very embarrassed by this. You know, superficially, my life was good. I made a decent living. We had amazing clients. We did good work. But um, I didn't want to wake up and do it again the next day. And so I, almost all my energy went into pretending that I was happier, more successful, and more in control than I felt, which is a really dark period. Um, like I said, I was just embarrassed with how I felt because things were superficially good. And it wasn't until a friend came to me and expressed concern for my well-being did that give me the courage to try and solve the problem. And the solution that I found was this thing called the why. Um, I was, you know, through a confluence of events, I was exposed to um, uh, a friend who started telling me about the biology of human decision-making. And this is when I learned that every single organization on the planet, even our own careers, all function on the same three levels, what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. I knew what I did, I knew how I did it, but I couldn't tell you why, and I became obsessed with that um, because I realized that was the thing that would bring me joy again, and it did. When I discovered my why, it restored my passion to levels vastly superior from before, and I did what anybody would do. I shared it with my friends, with the people I loved, and they started making crazy life changes, and, uh, and they would invite me to share it with their friends, and I would help people find their why for $100 on the side. Um, and literally, everything from there sort of blossomed. It was, uh, it was completely organic. People just kept inviting me and asking me, would I meet somebody? Would I, would I be willing to talk to somebody? Somebody said, would you, you should write a book about this. And even the way I got the book deal was untraditional. I never wrote a proposal. Somebody said, you should meet this person. I met a publisher who happened to be the, the god of business publishing, uh, the original publisher of Jim Collins' From Good to Great, and the publisher of Stan McChrystal's books and Seth Godin's books and... We had a meeting, and three days later, they offered me a book deal. So it's all been organic, and uh, I'm, I'm but a humble messenger and very, very grateful to everyone around me who believed in this message and was willing to uh, put their reputations and their relationships on the line to help me uh, share the message. Simon, it's, it's interesting, and we'll talk about that 2009 uh, TED Talk, which really brought you lots, uh, lots more exposure. But yeah. many great authors say that, they're almost inspired that it isn't really their work, that they connected to something bigger, something bigger than themselves. Do you feel the same way? Yeah. Oh, 100%. You know, um, I really, I never set out to be an author. I never set out to be a speaker. I, I, I stumbled into this message and, and had a decision to make. Do I start a consultancy and make money helping people find their why? Or do I preach the message and, and, and expose as many people to the thinking as possible? And if my why is to inspire people to do what inspires them, then the decision's an easy one. And I became basically a, a preacher for a for a for a, a different kind of gospel. You know, it's um, I, I believe desperately in this thing, and 
and it's profoundly changed the way I live my life and, and built my business. That TED Talk in 2009 has now been watched by nearly 26 million people around the world. Did you? Yeah. How did you get invited in the first place? And were you really nervous before you went to it? Because clearly it has been life-changing. Yeah, so um, I'd already been giving the talk about the why and the Golden Circle for three years prior to the invitation. And uh, it wasn't an invitation to the main TED stage. It was a TEDx event held in Seattle in Washington State in, in America. And um, I was honored, of course. It was an honor to get an invitation, especially back then where there, there was still a relatively new thing. And I showed up, and there were only 50 people in the room. Um, and some of the other people on, on the stage with me were sort of like Ed Visters, this world-famous mountain climber, and um, uh, uh, Charles Lindbergh's grandson. I mean, like these amazing people, you know, and I was sort of humbled to, to be included. Um, and I gave an 18-minute version of a talk that I knew well and had been giving for three years and was excited to inspire the people in the room. And, and that sort of motivated me in all my speaking, which is, I wasn't concerned about who was watching on the video. I was concerned about inspiring the people who were standing right in front of me. Three years. And um, when you say you've, you've given uh, the yeah. talk for three years, yeah, I, you I, must I, have it pretty I, I, pretty I, polished. Yeah, I mean, I, I had, the thing that scared me was I didn't think I could do it in 18 minutes. I knew I could do it in an hour, an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and so the only scary bit was, is this even doable in 18 minutes? Um, um, and so I think the reason that the, the, the thing resonated so much and, and gained such, you know, sort of such a following was because it's fundamentally true. It's fundamentally based on my own personal experience. Um, uh, it's not an academic study. It's not a commercial enterprise. It's, it's just it's the journey of one human being who, who rediscovered his passion. And that's what we all want, isn't it? How great leaders inspire action. That's the, the uh, tagline, as it were, to start with the why. Maybe just for people who haven't been exposed, those few people outside the 26 million uh, who haven't seen the, the TED Talk yet, when you uh, focus on the why in even shorter than 18 minutes, what is the message? Um, as I said before, every single one of us knows what we do. These are the products we sell, the services we offer, the jobs we do. Uh, some of us know how we do what we do. These are the things that we think make us special or stand out from the crowd. These are the things we write on our CVs. Companies call these their differentiating value propositions and things like that. But very, very few of us can clearly articulate why we do what we do. And by why, I don't mean to make money. That's a result. Um, by why, I mean what's your purpose, what's your cause, what's your belief. Why did you get out of bed this morning? Why did you uh, come to work? And why should anyone care? Um, and so what I've learned was that those who understand their why, um, who understand that deep-seated purpose, cause, or belief that inspires them, um, those that can articulate their why um, inspire those around them. Um, and every great leader, everybody from you know Nelson Mandela to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. to Steve Jobs, these people with the capacity to inspire those around them to rise up and be a part of something bigger than themselves, whether it's a social movement or a business, every single one of them thinks, acts, and communicates, starting with the why. Mm. You describe yourself as an unshakable optimist, and uh, South Africa really needs some of that right now. In fact, uh, in many ways, it would, be, it would have been great if you'd stayed here for longer than just five years. Uh, there, I, I'm not sure that you follow uh, events in this country, 
But if you were to be consulting to leaders and particularly, say, the leadership of South Africa, where does the why begin from a political perspective? So um, vision, the thing we can see, right, the, uh, uh, a statement of a, of, a, of a more inspiring, better future that does not yet exist, is one of the ways the why comes to life. It's one of the ways leaders expresses their why, is they express a tangible form of it in the shape of a vision, right? And um, what you find too often in politics today is people are way more preoccupied with their own jobs than they are with actually serving the greater good of the nation. And we see this in businesses as well. We see executives that are way too preoccupied with their own bonuses and their own salaries and less preoccupied with the well-being of the people who work in the company. Um, and it's the same thing, you know. Just as just as so few of us would be willing to make sacrifices for our people, well, unfortunately, we have very few politicians that would sacrifice their jobs for the greater good. Now, I spend a lot of time with men in the military, men and women in the military, and these are people who are willing to give up their lives for something they believe in, and yet our politicians won't even give up their jobs for something they believe in. Mm. And so it becomes it becomes about ambition, not about idealism. And this is the main problem with politics around the world. I'm, we're in the middle of a really ridiculous and sort of comical presidential election here in the United States. And it's, it's plain to see. Ambition outstrips idealism. And they speak in lofty terms, but they don't actually believe it. And we can tell. Um, and that's, that's a real shame. And so, first of all, we have to find somebody who truly does believe in, in service and the greater good in, 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 in maybe even sacrificing their interests to serve the lives of other human beings, like a parent. Just like a parent would sacrifice their interests to serve the lives of their children, to build them up, to see that they're capable of more than they thought they were capable of for themselves, so too does a great leader build us up, help us build the confidence, help us uh, learn the skills and the tools so that we too may achieve more than we thought capable, than we, we thought what we're capable of. If you, if you were look to... throughout history... Mm. Sorry? All of our great leaders did that for us. They built us up. Mm. Simon, if you were to invert it, because quite often you can see what a good leader is by seeing what a bad leader is, how would you typify or personify clearly a, a, a clearly bad leader uh, from your perspective? So a bad leader is more likely to pay attention to what a poll tells them to say than rather telling you what, we actually, what they actually believe. In other words, they would risk being humiliated or risk people disagreeing with them um, because it's the right thing to do, because it's who they actually are. Um, a bad leader uses fear to maintain authority, or a good leader chooses rather to inspire. Um, a bad leader um, is vengeful and is preoccupied, is overly preoccupied with the competition. A good leader tends to ignore the competition, is overly preoccupied with the vision and direction they're heading. Um, a bad leader wants to win every battle. A good leader understands that sometimes you, you, you lose battles, you focus on the war. Um, uh, bad leaders see uh, the people around them as pawns to advance their interests. A good leader sees the people around them as partners um, where they can advance their common interests. Um, the list goes on. The list it's, goes on. Those are wonderful examples that you've given. But if you happen to be stuck with a bad leader in a country, in a company, in a in a society, mm-hmm. how does one get rid of them? How does do they do they eventually overplay their hand, or or how does it all end up? 
Well, um, you know, here's the, the irony of leadership. The irony of leadership is that the power always belongs to the people, always. Um, this is why uh, in democracies we know that, um, and in dictatorships, the leaders still fear the people. You know, this is why they have fake elections and they bust in paid supporters to give the appearance of popular support because the people always have the power. And so sometimes the problem isn't the people who are in power. The problem is the rest of us who, 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 who don't rally together because what, what bad leaders do very effectively is they keep the people divided. They like internal strife because the people are divided. They will never organize against the leader. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so effective leadership doesn't have to happen at the top. It can happen in the middle. And so the question is, forget about the politicians at the top. Where are the people in the middle? Where are the average, where are the average people in society who may not even have positions of authority? They may not even be. I mean, look at Lech Walesa, who changed, who changed Poland. He was a, he was a dockyard worker, you know? Mm. Um, you see these, and, 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 and by the way, I'm a great believer in, in evolution, not revolution. Revolutions tend to be sudden and violent, and they always have a counter-revolution, and the conditions have to be pretty deplorable that the revolution is the better solution. <laughs> mm. um, but evolution is about bringing the people together. It's about collecting, uh, bringing a collective consciousness together. Um, and somebody has to start. Somebody has to give a speech. Somebody has to write something. Has, somebody has to offer us something to believe in. Somebody has to be willing to sacrifice to the, for the person to the left and the person to the right, which will in turn inspire those people to sacrifice for the person to the left and the person to the right. Leadership bubbles up. And so the question is, is not about the leaders at the top of the, uh, of the government. The question is, where are any of the leaders in the country? Where are the leaders? They can be in schools. They can be teachers, they can be uh, uh, factory workers, they can be entrepreneurs, they can be CEOs. Where are the people that care about the people? And why aren't they speaking up? Well, we are seeing in South Africa, interestingly enough, quite a lot of uh, student activism, uh, burning down uh, buildings right. at universities, which are not, not necessarily uh, something that everybody believes in. But is that, yep. is that a step in the right direction, that at least people are being heard? Um, so violence is never a good thing, and screaming and yelling is never a good thing because we react to the screaming and yelling, right? It's like when you have a fight with someone you love. The minute you swear or insult them, you've lost the, you've lost the argument, even if you were right. Because the minute you make it personal, the minute you swear, um, they can react to the fact that you are disrespectful or the fact that you're, uh, you're, you're unhinged, which would be legitimate. And so rational and peaceful is always, always better. And what I, what, I'm, uh, what I never understand is all of these warring factions, and I use the term loosely, but disagreeing factions of, of independent thinkers, why don't they combine forces? Yes, we can't all agree on the right course of action, but we can all agree on one thing, that the status quo that we're being offered is insufficient. So let's start there. Let's start in where we can find common ground. Even if we disagree on, on the course of action, we can all agree that the way it's working now is not good, and there must be a better way. And if we, if we enter into that engagement in civil discourse and work together to figure out um, the best course of action and maybe, maybe multiple course of actions for that common cause, what you have is the, the rise of leaders. That's, that's, that's the rise of Nelson Mandela. It's the rise of any great leader. You know, I'll tell you a quick Mandela story. The reason Mandela is important 
is because he is regarded around the world as a great leader. Different nations have different ideas of who was great and who wasn't, but Mandela, everyone agrees. And he was asked by a journalist many years ago, how did you become a great leader? And he was the son of a tribal chief, and he, re he, re he said to the journalist, I remember going to tribal meetings with my father, and I remember two things. We always sat in a circle, and my father was always the last to speak. And we're always telling people, you have to be a better listener, you have to be a better listener. Mm. But we are social animals, that we communicate, and communication is listening and talking. But leadership, the practice of being the last to speak, is one of the greatest leadership's lessons ever, because what it does is multiple things. Very often, you just see this in boardrooms. Uh, an executive will walk in and say, here's the problem, here's what I think we should do, but I'm interested in what you all think. It's too late. Because mm. people either change their opinions based on what the, what the authority said, or um, they start agreeing with each other, uh, or they just don't give you their candid answers, and they, don't fe they no longer feel heard because the, the executive has already weighed in. And so for a leader to say, this is the challenge we face, I want to know what you think, without rendering any opinion, and then listening and trying to understand, never saying, well, I disagree with you as he goes around the room, or saying, ah, that's a good idea, as she points to somebody else for, her. in other words, giving no hints of agreement or disagreement, but rather trying to understand the, the, the reason that somebody has that opinion, and stating it back in their terms, simply to be clear that there's agreement. By the time we get around the table and get back to the leader, Everyone feels heard. Everyone feels like they contributed. What's more, the leader has the benefit of even more perspective. Uh, perspective. And even if the leader renders a decision that is different than what someone in the room believes, everyone feels like they contributed and felt heard. That's leadership. That's leadership. And it's not just speaking last, but eating last as well. Your second book, which is uh, I've had the privilege of reading through and, and thoroughly enjoyed, uh, focuses on, on perhaps taking that one step further. Yes. Uh, the, when I say uh, the, the title of the book is Leaders Eat Last is a metaphor, um, just like we feed our children before we feed ourselves. H how did you know that? Did somebody teach you that? Did you read that in a book? It's a, it's a, par it's a parental instinct. It's a maternal and paternal instinct to take care of, the, of our children, to take care of those in our charge. And that's what true leadership is. It's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in our charge. Same as in politics. It's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in our charge. Right? Mm. And, um, and so when I talk about leaders eat, eating last, though they may be allowed to eat first because of their position or rank, though they may be afforded perks and, and, um, and uh, advantages simply because of their position, at the end of the day, true leaders would sooner sacrifice their interests in order to take care of the, uh, people's lives and never sacrifice the lives of people to take care of their interests. And so though they may be entitled to eat first, they choose to eat last as, as a, an honest expression of, um, of where they understand their loyalties lie. Simon, how do you read the dilemma of the African continent? In, in many ways, there's a swing now back away from democracy, back to the big man of Africa. You have Zimbabwe's uh, president for life, yeah. other presidents who are sure. now changing constitutions to try and stay into, in power for longer. H how, do, how is that, A, able to occur, and B, yeah. diverted so far from true leadership? Sure. I mean, 
Winston Churchill's old quote, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, is part of it. Um, you know, power is intoxicating. And even for good leaders, there's still the temptation of money and fame and, and authority. It, and it is a very, very hard game. Um, and only when um, we have uh, people in our lives who give us honest truths, who aren't just our friends, so they can get some personal gain out of it, you know, can we create the systems of change? I think part of it is also the incentive structures. You get the behavior you reward. So in a company, if you compensate a, uh, an executive of a public company with stock, he's going to care much more about the price of the equity than he will about the performance of the company because that's how he's that's how he's compensated. You always get the behavior you reward. You know, we do with our children too. You know, you can only have dessert if you eat your vegetables. Guess what? They eat their vegetables. <laughs> right? It's not complicated. Um, and so we have to ask not just Africa, but the rest of the world. I mean, the rest of the world, I think, very often treats Africa not not as a as a place of democratic opportunity, but a place of of exploitation. And so, how do the to the outside countries and outside leaders treat these 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 rising uh, uh, dictators? And are they just using them to get more resources to get what they want for their economies, rather than disincentivizing? You know. Um, so the question is, is sort of where do the incentives come from? Because mm. uh, you always get the behavior you reward. Um, it's uh, it's not easy. It's complicated. And um, at the end of the day, I hope that there's uh, some young leader somewhere um, who will rise up and show us how it's done. Let's hope that uh, you spot on with that one. You've done a lot of work with the military. It's uh, it's yeah. uh, it's quite evident in your book, Leaders Eat Last, where uh, you do talk yeah. about the Marines. Uh, have you come across uh, the VUCA, uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity approach towards leadership? General George Casey is, is somebody who's promoting that, for instance. Uh, not per se, it's, so it, 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 it would be, from your perspective, uh, what, was the, what did the military teach you and, uh, about leadership? So um, the, 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 the journey of Leaders at Last began um, with a few experiences. Um, I'd met some people who we would consider heroes, who really did risk their lives um, to save the lives of others. And when I asked them, why did you do it? They simply responded, because they would have done it for me. And I was so struck by these people that I wanted to know where they came from because, you know, in the military they give medals to people who are willing to sacrifice themselves so that others may gain. And in the private sector, we give bonuses to people who are willing to sacrifice others so that we may gain. <laughs> in other words, we have it backwards. Yeah. And so I wanted to know, for the simple reason that I would rather work with people like the heroes than with, than with the people that I actually worked with, I want to know where they came from. And my original conclusion was they're better people. <laughs> yeah. But the more I started to learn and the more I started to research, uh, I discovered that it's not the people, it's the environment. Um, and that if you take good people and you put them in a bad environment, they're capable of doing bad things. And if you take people who may have done prior bad acts and may not be trustworthy and you put them in a good environment, they're capable of turning their lives around and becoming remarkable uh, and productive members of society. In other words, it's never the people, it's always the environment. We are social animals, and we respond to the environments we're in. And that's why leaders matter, because leaders set the environment. Mm -hmm. If the leader gets the environment right, trust and cooperation are standard. If the leader gets the environment wrong, cynicism, paranoia, mistrust, 
and, and self-interest prevail at a company level, at a, at a small group level, even at a nation-state level. Get the environment right, we take care of each other. Get the environment wrong, we, we prioritize, we take care of ourselves at the expense of others. So how do, um, how do we as, uh, as citizens, or particularly citizens in a democracy, promote or yeah. encourage good leaders, so those, those heroes right. amongst us? So I get this question a lot, especially in corporate environments, which is, you know, I'm, I'm middle management. People say I don't have uh, control over the, the company and the CEO doesn't get it. What do I do? And the answer is you cannot control the things you cannot control. So to obsess about what, what the people at the top are doing when you have no influence over them is, is a fool's game. And so my advice is always the same. Obsess about the things you can control. Right? Mm-hmm. Worry about the people whose names you know and whose faces you recognize. And this is, this is it's called the law of diffusion of innovation. This is how change happens. And so even in the nation, if you're dissatisfied with leadership, you, you can't, except for the times you get to vote or protest, you actually have no control over their decisions. And so our responsibility is to build the companies, to build the institutions, to create the families where we're obsessed about the well-being of each other, and that becomes the norm. And no leader can challenge what becomes the societal norm. And so I would argue that our leaders may be a reflection of us. Are they the problem or are we the problem? Mm. Are we getting the leaders we deserve? Um, so, so I would say let's take a look, a hard, hard look at ourselves and say, are we acting as the leaders we wish we had? Are we being the leaders we wish we had. Let us prioritize the well-being of the people around us. Let us be willing to sacrifice our short-term interests for the long-term good of our families, our organizations, our friends, our colleagues. Let us be willing to say, I don't understand, I need help, I made a mistake, and allow others to come to our aid. Trust is not built when we offer help. Trust is built when we ask for help. Mm. And great leaders ask for help from the citizens. But maybe we, maybe we are the ones who need to make the change first. But the, the so this good, is what I would recommend. The good thing is that your message is getting through or can be amplified so much now through social media. I was having a look at your enormous followings that you have on Twitter, more than 200,000, two, a quarter of a million people on Facebook and so on. Do you think that that, that amplification is, is or are you seeing reflections or manifestations of how that is affecting society? You know, I'm embarrassed that I have a career. I talk about things like trust and cooperation, and there should be no demand for my work, right? Mm. But the fact that there is demand for my work, I will say, is an opportunity. The fact that people want to read about and hear about the things that I talk about and how to build trust and cooperation means that they don't feel like they have the trusting cooperative relationships that they wish they had at work or in politics or anywhere else. And so I'm proud to be a foot soldier in this movement. And anyone who is out there with me and, and, and we're joining, join forces, you know, my work resonates with people and has popularity because we, we need each other. You know, me preaching a cause is useless if, if others aren't willing to, to actually change the way in which they lead and change their own behaviors. Then I'm just a, just a blowhard, right? Hmm. But at the same time, people who are trying to figure it out, figure it out by themselves is lonely, and sometimes we don't always know what we're doing. And if, if I'm lucky enough that I had an idea or two um, 
that can help advance and help people gain clarity and get the answers they need, or even just find the language that's been inside them all along and to help them express their own feelings about what they're trying to do, then I'm honored to play that role. So I think the reason my work has gained a, a following is because it's human and honest and true, and, and we all need each other. And, and like I said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a proud and humble servant of those who, who, who helped me spread the message. And authentic, authentic, authentic. Uh, Simon, when's your next book coming out? You've had two so far. Are you working on something? Um, yeah, there's a few in the works, believe it or not. Um, we have one that's coming out at the end of this year, which is a really a, just a nice book. It's a book of quotes, um, really just a little bit of inspiration to remind us to be the kinds of leaders we wish we were, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. We want or to be the kind of leader we need in our lives. Um, little reminders. Um, and then there's um, a, a version of Start With Why that I'm writing for 12 to 16-year-olds, which I'm really excited about, to give kids a head start on what it means to start with why. Um, so they don't have to learn like, like the rest of us, you know, it's too late. Um, and then there's another book um, where I'm exploring a new theory, um, much like, a, you know, sort of it's another thinky-thinky book, uh, like Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last, where um, I take a look at game theory and, and compare how our organizations and societies and, and nation states treat each other based on game theory. And it's absolutely fascinating. I've become really enamored by it. So lots of, lots of books in the works. Where do you get your inspiration from? Who do you, you read? Um, I tend not to read things in my own category. Um, and my inspiration comes from the conversations I have. Um, for me, it's more important to be away from my desk than at my desk. Um, when I travel and get to meet people who truly are inspiring and know a lot more about the subject than I do, and I get to hear them and have conversations with them, it gives me ideas. And it's, it's, the, it's the conversations, it's the interaction, it's the learning. It's, you know, I show up everywhere I go as a student. I don't even consider myself an expert in leadership. I'm very embarrassed when people introduce me as an expert in leadership. I'm a student of leadership. My education may be more advanced than some others, but I'm still a student of leadership. And, and uh, I don't know all the answers, and I'm always learning, and I'm always looking to refine. And no matter who I meet or where I go, I show up as a student. So is it these conversations that give you that unshakable optimism, as you call yourself? Unbe- uh, absolutely. The questions that you ask, the way you frame your questions, you're forcing me to think in ways I, I didn't think before. I haven't been thinking. And, and the answers I'm giving to you are me solving the problem that you asked out loud, you know? So I'm going to go back and listen to this interview when it comes out because there are things that I, f- that I want to further explore that you and I have talked about. This is how I learned. This, is, this, is, this has been wonderful. It's been wonderful Thanks. from us as well, Simon, and, and lovely to know the South African connection is there, not just through your admiration for our Madiba, our Nelson Mandela, but the fact that you spent five years of your life here, maybe, maybe the most formative years of your life, uh, some psychologists it, might it's say. It's possible. It's very possible. And uh, we look forward to those new books of yours as well. Simon Sinek, author of um, uh, Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last, also one of the top three best-watched uh, TED Talks of all time, the one that he gave in September 2009, uh, which has been watched by 26 million people. It's been a privilege. Thank you for joining us today. An honor. Thank you very much.